You do not need to be a football fan or be associated with the NFL in any way to know what this picture represents. If you've been alive at all over the last two weeks, you know about what happened with DeMar Hamilton on Monday night, that game against uh, uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, Buffalo Bills were playing and, and after making a hit, all of a sudden he stands up and then he falls over dead. Uh, and now in hindsight, we know what's happened. Uh, medical science has been able to diagnose this and, and uh, uh, recognize the string of events that led to that. Um, but it was interesting. I, I got home late, I turned on the game and, and they weren't even playing. I, 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 I saw this picture, they were all kneeling and, and many of the players were, 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 were praying. Up until the game, I had never heard of, of Damar Hamlin. I'm guessing a lot of the world hadn't unless you were a Bills fan or, or maybe a member of his family. Uh, one of the things I noticed that as those events were unfolding, a, a lot of people just absolutely didn't have a clue what to do. Um, the announcers at the, uh, on TV themselves, you know, they tried to fill airspace, but, but they, they didn't know how this was going to turn out. They, they didn't really know what was going to come of this. But there was one thing, even though people's emotions were all over the board, this one thing caught my attention. And, and I don't watch ESPN much, but, but I, I was trying to figure out what was going on because I was late to the party. And I noticed all of a sudden that Dan Arslavsky led the ESPN panel in prayer on TV. And this is the prayer. They, I actually found the quote of it. And, and if you go through the prayer, it's a pretty good prayer. Uh, he says things like, we believe that your God in coming to you and praying to you has impact. And then if we didn't believe that prayer worked, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. And they hold up Demar in, in the name of the Lord. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember the last time on national TV in this country I saw somebody praying and, and praying well. Uh, over the last two weeks, uh, the people of our country have been beneficiaries of witnessing God's answer to that prayer and many other prayers that were prayed on, on DeMar's half. And these are just some of the headlines. I, I found news and sports commentators. One man said, this certainly is a miracle, no question. A miracle before eyes, DeMar Hamlin gets discharged from the bus, Buffalo Hospital. Or this one, DeMar Hamlin's timeline is nothing short of a miracle. People recognized that what took place before their very eyes and then the weeks that follow was divine intervention on behalf of God. Now, one of the interesting things about miracles is how does God do them? How does God operate? And of course, we recognize that DeMar got immediately met, immediate medical attention. It was no accident that God allowed this to happen with so many medically trained people right there to jump to his help. We also know that he got excellent care uh, in the Cincinnati Hospital, some of these experts that were able to keep people posted and, and to help him out. We recognize that God has blessed us today with the ability to develop medical protocols and, and the machinery necessary, the, the ventilator that was used to help give him the oxygen that he so desperately need. Uh, uh, acknowledging miracles doesn't deny that God also sometimes uses natural means and works through them. Um, but not everybody will recognize that. I came across this, this one tweet by a, a, a doctor, uh, Hansen, and, and I'm not sure if she's a minister or not. She starts out a message from a hospital doctor. May I humbly request not to call Damar Hamlin's recovery a miracle? It wasn't a miracle. He had a sudden cardiac arrest with a shockable rhythm, received enough oxygen to his brain to preserve it through CPR, and was shocked back into rhythm. Then the second follow-up, with recovery time and ventilator support, he is where he is today. She attributes DeMar's recovery to nothing more than medical 
science. It's unfortunate. Um, I think maybe some people, maybe they just don't want to see the hand of God, or maybe they're just blind to it. I think given this reaction to what happened with Damar and our subject matter today, we should probably start by defining what actually is a miracle. And I found this one. It's, it's pretty good from a worldly point of view that people will recognize that when events happen that are outside the scope of science or natural events, they have to attribute it to something else. And of course, hopefully they attribute it to God. So this is a pretty good miracle definition, but there's, uh, as students of God's word, there's one more uh, detail we should add to that, and that would be sometimes things often appear to be very natural or ordinary events, but we have to acknowledge that God is actually working through those events. And, And I don't care who you are, or what path you've walked in life, while we give thanks to God for doctors and nurses and medical treatment, you and I both know that whether a person lives or dies always comes down to the hand of God. We have to keep all of this in mind because our next lesson in this Revelation study, not the book, but the revelation of God's glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, we go into the next phase by taking a look at Jesus' miracles. And one specifically we're going to look at is his first miracle. This is our lesson. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. We're going to talk about miracles this morning. We're not going to over-talk about them. I'm sure most of you have have been educated what a miracle is. You've probably been witness to an extraordinary miracle. I would hope that you haven't missed some of the less extraordinary miracles. Before we actually dig in, I'd like to offer one word of caution as we go through this. Uh, I would simply highlight that we should not lose our focus through this entire study on the real miracle that takes place here. So what is the this John is talking? Two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. (laughs) Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. (laughs) When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They are out of wine. Madam, what do you have to do with this? My time has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you. The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose six stone water jars were there, each one large enough to hold between 20 and 30 gallons. Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. 
They took him the water, which now had turned into wine, and he tasted it. He did not know where this wine had come from, but of course the servants who had drawn out the water knew. So he called the bridegroom. Everyone else serves the best wine first, and after the guests have drunk a lot, he serves the ordinary wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus performed this first miracle in Cana in Galilee. There he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So that's the this that John refers to in our lesson, and um, since it is from the Gospel of John, that gives me just a moment to review a little bit of what we discussed last week when we introduced the Epiphany series. Uh, one of the things I had mentioned is that four out of the seven lessons uh, that we're going to be taking a look at all come from the Gospel of John, so felt it important that we spend just a little time last week getting to know John's Gospel and just how different it is from the other three Gospels, the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of these things that I talked about last week still very much apply, like John was the last one written, and it was written in the last decade of the first century during a, a fairly tumultuous time in the church where there were a lot of questions about who Jesus is because this lesson in the revelation of his glory speaks to that as well. There's also John is one of the few actually authors in the Bible, much less gospel writer, who identifies the very purpose for which his gospel was written. And it is to lead people to believe in Jesus as Messiah. And we'll wrestle through again what the misunderstanding of much of that was for the Jewish people. Now, uh, one of the things I'd also shared with you is that John writes this gospel from a very Jewish point of view. And, and the reason why I made that statement, it, it's an obvious conclusion based on the fact that as you read through John, he cites these Jewish customs and then offers no word of explanation. As opposed to like Luke's gospel that's written for Gentile readers, oftentimes he will insert and explain what, what this is about. So when John says, behold the Lamb of God, he doesn't get into the whole thing about, well, how the Lamb was used in the daily and annual sacrifices. There's another element I, I want to share with you this morning that I didn't share with you last week. And this also becomes very important in understanding uh, something about this miracle. And it has to do with the fact that um, since John wrote this at the end of the first century, he does so at a time when he is actually the last apostle left alive. Uh, and as the last apostle, he's given oversight of the Asia churches, the ones mostly that Paul was involved in establishing. And, and that tells us that while it's from a Jewish point of view, it's also written in such a way that it's meant to touch the Gentile culture. And I need to remind you that many of these churches were, were predominantly Gentile, and they grew up with an understanding of false gods, uh, uh, hundreds of false gods, and, and many legends about uh, these gods. And the one that will become important in understanding this miracle is the god, the false god, Dionysus. More on that later. Now, since we're only looking at one verse, and I did this very much on purpose, um, we're going to tackle this lesson a little bit differently. We're going to not work through it word by word, but we're going to work through it from the perspective of these four different but important 
questions. And, and part of the reason why we do that is, is I'm not going to go back and re-explain the whole miracle. A lot of times what we would normally do is look at the first 10 verses of this chapter. And, and while that's beneficial, sometimes we can get caught in the weeds. Um, because Jesus' first miracle, our first recorded miracle, was changing water to wine, and then people will have uh, certain conclusions that the, the text says nothing about, like Jesus is promoting drunkenness. Because, of course, in Jewish culture, you know, weddings were a week-long party, if you will. Uh, or somehow he's at least uh, guiding people into social drinking, which in and of itself, there's nothing, thing, nothing wrong with. These secondary questions can become distracting, and that's not where we're going. There is one secondary question that we're not going to try and answer, but it does have bearing on today's lesson, and, and that has to do with, and you saw it in the video, why does Mary, the mother of Jesus, believe it's important for her at this point to interject herself into the ministry of Jesus? If you've ever heard a lesson on this first miracle, I, I'm sure a good amount of time was spent trying to describe the difference in the conversation in English as opposed to, say, the Greek language. They translated it as madam. It, it's a very polite term. I would simply conclude God doesn't tell us why Mary interjected herself here, and I think it's better to leave it in the unknown so that we don't focus on her but instead we focus on what she was trying to do because that is an important point in today's lesson. So if you will, let's start with the first one. Why was this the first miracle? Uh, and the reason why it's asked is because from a very human perspective, it would seem like Jesus did it all wrong. Um, he does his first miracle up in this little obscure town of Cana. It, it's not too far from Nazareth where he grew up, but it's a, a tiny village. It would seem like since he's just now beginning his, his public ministry, it would make more sense to go down to the city of Jerusalem, the most populated city in the entire land of Israel. And to do so at such a time where he might have had as uh, great an impact on people as ever. So we would think, well, uh, he should have gone to Jerusalem, he should have gone to the temple where he could have had a large audience and all at once showed him that he was the Son of God. But Jesus really does the exact opposite. You see, it's interesting that right after being at Cana, he goes down to Jerusalem. And he actually gets there at a time when they're celebrating the Passover feast, one of the three major festivals, which meant that not only was the regular population there, but it was packed with guests and visitors. So you would think, why not go to the temple then and razzle-dazzle them? And people would have, of course, had to say, this is God, this is God. Instead, what Jesus does is when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he starts flipping the tables of the money changers and driving out the merchants who were selling the sacrificial animals. Instead of making the kind of impact we would have thought at the beginning of his ministry, he starts by ticking off a lot of people, some pretty powerful people which immediately sets about, from that point forward, he was going to be under some very secure, uh, severe scrutiny. But God used that as well. And remember, as performing this miracle in Cana, the only ones who knew what he was doing were those servants who filled the water jugs, of course Mary, his mother, and then the disciples. But that in and of itself kind of answers the question, why was this the first miracle? What we haven't talked about yet is what intervenes between his baptism, the start of his public ministry, and this wedding at Cana. He had been busy calling and installing his first disciples. And he was training them from this point forward to be world changers. They would one day be sent out with the message of the gospel, which was the only thing that can impact and change people's lives. But before they could do that, they themselves needed to be trained, or maybe the word is re-educated, they needed to be changed. And it has to do with the concept of Messiah, which we talked about last week, and we'll review again. You see, the text itself actually answers why this was the first miracle of Jesus' public ministry. He thus reveals his glory, 
And the disciples put their faith in him. They're starting to grasp that when Jesus says, I am the Messiah, when I'm the promised one of God sent into this world, that that means something uniquely different than what they had been brought up believing. Which now leads us into our second question. So how does this miracle impact the Jewish people? Well, it starts with the disciples who were Jewish, but eventually it would filter out to their brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel. And there are certain aspects of this miracle that once we peel back some of the layers, we see the wisdom of God and how he chooses to do things. It actually starts with something we talked about last week. And I had shared with you this description of what the Jewish people believed about Messiah at the time of Jesus. And I'm not going to reread the whole thing. I'll just focus on a couple highlighted things. First of all, they thought he would be only human. They in no way, shape, or form believed that Messiah would also be true God. And of course, every time he performed a miracle, it screams, this is no ordinary man. The other thing is, is one of the beliefs was that the Messiah himself wouldn't know or recognize that he was the chosen one of God until God the Father himself revealed it to Messiah. From day one, Jesus makes it clear, not only does he know that he's the Messiah, but he fully knows and embraces God the Father's plan for what Messiah would do in this world and for each of us lost and condemned creatures. What about John's way of writing? And what about the fact that he's speaking to the Jewish culture? Can we find within this miracle that shows us just how wise and loving our God is? And it comes at the intersection of these two points. And I had already stated to you, I don't care why Mary thought this was a good time to go tell Jesus what to do. Maybe it's nothing more than a mom telling her oldest son, the one who's supposed to be most responsible, we got a problem, why don't you help us out? I don't think it's really about any of those details that we often get confused about. I think it simply comes down to this. Mary is expressing something about the Jewish culture that oftentimes we miss because we're focused on the miracle itself. And speaking of the miracle, the other point of consideration is why of all of the miracles that Jesus could have started with, did he choose changing water into wine? Again, I think it helps us to look at it from the point of the question, how does this miracle benefit not only these disciples, but then ultimately Jewish people who would hear about it? The first has to do with this virtue of the Jewish cult of this Hanaksat Ochim, which is basically the Hebrew way of saying that one of the most things you can do as a Jewish person is to be hospitable. It's based on that Old Testament lesson that we had from Genesis chapter 18. And I would challenge you that if you desire, you could go through the entire Bible and look at passages that deal with the virtue of hospitality. And almost in every single one of those uh, situations, you're going to find human beings entertaining God himself or God's messengers, the angels. We find that Abraham's doing both, the son of God before he becomes Jesus, and two angels. And in our gospel lesson, without wanting to acknowledge it, the Pharisee was playing host to the second person of the Trinity who also had taken on human flesh and blood. And the very fact that he refuses to show Jesus the most common courtesy of Jewish hospitality indicates to us that he rejected Jesus' claim as Messiah. It shows us that also there are not times where God would say, well, let me perform a miracle and that should convince you. Instead, in that situation, Jesus chose to teach a parable. What comes in our gospel lesson that I skipped over was Jesus is saying, well, if somebody owes somebody a lot of money and somebody forgives it, well, 
who's going to appreciate or love the one who forgives most. I, you can read that on your own. The point is, is that Jesus knew that this woman, who was showing him greater hospitality than the host, truly understood that he was Messiah and that her sins were forgiven. There's something about the hospitality when you connect it with the miracle of changing water to wine. I've cited for you several references in that middle section, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but many times in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, wine is used as a symbol of delivering joy. Uh, There's a, a reference to that in Judges. There's one in the Psalms. The one I chose to share for you is the one from Isaiah because this is that section from Isaiah where he starts to go into great prophetic detail about who Messiah would be and what would Messiah do. And those verses, come, buy wine and milk without, uh, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And it's a strange way to talk about the prophecy, but the reality is if you buy something without cost, that means it's a gift freely given. Milk, you've heard in phrases where the land of uh, Israel is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's also one of the blessings of God. It speaks to life and God's generosity. Wine also speaks to God's generosity, but the generosity of giving us joy. And without even realizing it, the, the steward of the wedding feast also offers commentary on the very situation that Messiah, of all people, would have been attending this wedding. Not only did the miracle produce the best wine saved for last, but this wedding situation itself produced the situation where God himself had finally fulfilled the Messiah promise, in essence, had also saved the best for last. This combined with the fact of how John records his gospel, so uniquely different. Here's another passage from Isaiah. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's chapters earlier than the wine one, but it speaks about prophecy of how the nation of Israel was to recognize Messiah when he came. And one of those indicators would be the fact that Messiah would do miracles and not little tricks, but big miracles, making lame people walk, Blind people see. And while Isaiah doesn't speak to it, the Jewish culture recognized that Messiah himself would be able to raise dead back to life. All of these miracles of Jesus combined just scream at the Jewish people. This is the one that God had promised. Now John does that in a really special way. One of the unique differences I told you last week is that of the 35 miracles in the Gospels, John only records eight of them. But he does so with more detail an explanation. I'd like to show you those eight miracles. Now, of those eight miracles, what we find is that five of these, John is the only one to record them. And you will notice that there is a parallel between the miracles which John alone records directly back to the prophecy of Isaiah as to how they would recognize Messiah. You see, it shows us that God very clearly and with great purpose and forethought chooses what miracles to perform when. And that should both give us some comfort as well as food for thought. That the purpose of a miracle is not simply to blow us away, but for us to stop and take a moment to acknowledge the glory of God and how he chooses to show that even in our day-to-day and ordinary lives. Which then leads to the other aspect. Well, John writes from a Jewish perspective, and obviously these prophetic passages I've shared with you also show us how specifically he's speaking to his own people. But there's something in this miracle, though, that also says, I want all people to be saved. The tidbit about John that I saved for you this morning was the fact that John wrote this 
at the end of the first century while he was in the city of Ephesus. That means that his first readers of this gospel would not have been Jewish and have known or understood immediately all of the Jewish things within his gospel writing, but there was something in this miracle that most definitely would have spoken to the Gentile culture. In Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, he turns water into wine when the drinks run out at a wedding party. John 2.11 says, This was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana, of Galilee, and it manifested, his glory. Since John consistently used the word glory to describe the greatness of God the Father, we should ask, how does Jesus turning water into wine reveal his unique connection to God? Did you know that John is the only gospel writer to include this story? Why? Because his first readers grew up around the city of Ephesus, walking by Greek temples, and going to festivals that honored Greek gods. One popular Greek New Year festival celebrated how the god Dionysus created wine for humanity to enjoy. Ancient texts recount how fountains of wine flowed from his temples during the festival, and fresh water springs tasted like fine wine. At one New Year festival in the city of Elis, three pots were locked inside the temple overnight. In the morning, the priests would open the doors and find all three pots filled with wine. Why did everyone get excited for wine to appear? Because wine symbolized the presence of Dionysus returning to earth. He was the god of wine, and every other good thing that grew out of the ground. Since John's audience knew that wine revealed the presence of a god who brought life to earth, they understood the message, Jesus is the real god appearing on earth, not Dionysus. The water to wine miracle wasn't endorsing wine, it was acknowledging where it came from. It didn't encourage social drinking, but universal worship of Jesus. Everyone needed to realize that savory drinks and fine foods were his generous gift to humanity. I don't know if you ever noticed that, or if that's ever been explained before, but with this one miracle, Jesus kills two birds with one stone. He speaks to the Jewish culture on the basis of hospitality, but then he also speaks to Gentile culture on the basis of the miracle itself. It's absolutely brilliant. So if you're going to have your opening act to declare to the world that I am exactly the Son of God and Messiah, this is the perfect miracle to do that. And I can't prove this to you from the one verse of our text, but it's intriguing to me, especially for the Gentile culture, that God would choose a miracle that does exactly twice as much as the fake legend of this false God ever claimed to do. If you were a Gentile reading John's words for the first time, the message you would have clearly heard was, this man has certainly brought life back to this earth, which is exactly what Messiah was sent to do. Which leads us to the fourth question, and I would suspect in our lives, hopefully so, is the most important of these four questions. What on earth does this miracle have to do with the next seven days of your life? I'm sure you've heard sermons before about the changing of water to wine, and you've probably debated about different facts or whatever, but the reality is, what do we actually learn about our Savior who has the ability to do things like this? Well, let me recount what I've learned. First of all, I recognize that while we can't fully understand or know why exactly did Mary go to Jesus when they ran out of wine, and of course her concerns were about hospitality, it shows us something else. 
We shouldn't be afraid to go to God and ask for miracles when we think we need them. And, and I want to be careful when I say that because we have to divide between the wisdom of God and our wisdom. We have to divide between how God sees our lives and how we see our lives. And so when I encourage you to pray for miracles, I want to qualify that. God doesn't simply snap his fingers and zap out whatever we want because we think we want it. If you haven't studied for a test, you can't all of a sudden pray hard to God, please help me pass this thing. So all of a sudden you get an A even though you didn't do the work. I can't tell you how many times I prayed for a miracle going through high school and college and somehow God got me through. That's the miracle, not the A. You can't dig yourself into a financial hole. You can't practice poor stewardship and all of a sudden get down on your knees and go, hey God, that letter, that email I got from that Nigerian prince, could that actually be true? Could you send me that miracle? Because God has, doesn't use miracles to swoop in to save us from bad choices if there's a much greater lesson for us to learn. Like, be a good steward. Be a good student. God says, I want you to understand both are important in your Christian lives. Second thing I, I think I learned from this miracle, and I preached on it before, but never from this perspective. One of the things I learned was how important the virtue of hospitality is. Not just in this lesson, but hospitality is really our opportunity as God's children to reflect his glory to a world that oftentimes doesn't practice hospitality. Uh, I've whined about this too many times about how cold this world has become. And I can't figure out if it's the pandemic that brought it about or if we're just in that phase and era of our human existence. But it seems like people today are more hateful less polite, less caring than at any other time than I can recognize from my own life. So imagine how beautiful it is for God to use a miracle, which he did thousands of years ago, to send us home going, be good hosts. Be an Abraham. Don't be a Pharisee. Show the world what it means to have God touch your life and change you so that ultimately you can change others. I don't know if it's ever been explained to you like this or not, but you can be a miracle for somebody else when you show the same love that you've been shown and lead them to the Messiah. And then the final lesson one is, is that sometimes I think what we do is take a look at God's miracles from a completely inaccurate perspective. And I would choose the example of the last point. Again, I can't prove from this one verse why God did twice as much wine, but it does at very least teach me that God very carefully crafts his miracles at very specific times and uses them in very specific ways to answer questions and lead people to truth that they didn't even realize they needed to know. He used John in a very unique way, both with the Jewish and the Gentile culture. But imagine having grown up being taught again and again that there's hundreds of gods and they're only human and basically they're just as screwed up as you are. What a breath of fresh air that this miracle would teach us that we have a Savior who is so different. Even though he's flesh and blood like we are, he is God. He understands exactly what we feel and yet he has the heart and the mind of the divine. And so when we pray for a miracle, or we find ourselves in desperate situations saying, God, I need help, and I'm not sure what to ask for, Jesus steps forward and says, I know what you need, and here's how I'm going to deliver it. You see, at this point, with most of these sermons, I would simply stop and tell you to 
count your, your blessings. And I, I'm speaking about miracles, because I think there's a lot of ordinary miracles that we overlook in our lives. And I'm not going to necessarily avoid that. In fact, let me tell you about some of the miracles in my own life. One of the first ones was when I proposed to my wife, and she actually said yes. Miracle. Now, I know there was a long courting and all that, but uh, to this day, I count it as amongst my miracles. Uh, witnessing the birth of my three sons. Uh, I, there's no other way to describe it, but it's a miracle in the happening. And I, I know all life is miraculous, but until you stand there, especially with the oldest one, Caleb, I could not have been prouder to be a man and to be a father than when God gave me the miracle of the birth of my son. And, and you probably don't realize this, but it's a very miracle that I'm standing up in front of you today. Uh, my dad was a pastor. I expect all of his sons to be pastors, and so I went along with that. But I never planned to spend my entire working career as a pastor. Uh, you can ask my wife. I actually had a, f I think it started as a 10-year plan, and then on some of the harder days of my early ministry, it got down to a five-year plan. I was going to do something else with my life, and wouldn't you know it, here I stand today. I count that amongst the miracles of God. And I would suggest that you stop every once in a while and count what appear to be ordinary acts in your life and recognize they are truly miracles from God. But I would like you to consider that oftentimes the ordinary looking things really reveal to us some pretty big miracles. I don't know if you remembered, but I began by cautioning us not to overlook the big miracle here. And while I know changing water to wine is a pretty good miracle. It wasn't the biggest one that this lesson recounts for us. It's the fact that the disciples saw what Jesus did and they believed him. They believed he was Messiah. And remember, they were raised with such a twisted, just crazy view of who Messiah should be. That one act God used to convert hearts that had so much misunderstanding to recognize this is God in human form who's come to save us. I pray that you have not taken for granted your miracle of faith. Because not only does it give you the courage to face whatever's going on in your lives, it gives you the courage to believe some pretty crazy and impossible things. Even like a Damar Hamlin, who to this day should be cold in the ground, God decided I'm going to work my miracle through doctors and medicine and give him his life back. That miracle of faith does the very same thing for us. Count your miracles. The last time I checked, we believe the impossible around here. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and that he rested on the seventh. We believe that God made Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. We believe that God took a rib from Adam's side and made Eve. We believe that Noah built an ark and it took him 120 years to build it and that the animals came two by two. For over a year, God protected Noah from the waves and the rain and the flood waters. We believe that Moses led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, that he raised out his hand and raised out his staff, and God parted the sea for the children of Israel to walk across on dry land. We believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace, but did not burn up. They did not even smell like smoke. We believe that Daniel was thrown into a lion's den, but the lions did not attack him. He lived to tell of the day God rescued him. 
We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he was born of a virgin. We believe that Jesus walked on water and fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. We believe Jesus made the blind man see, the deaf man hear, the mute man speak, and the lame man walk. We believe that Jesus died on the cross and took up upon himself our sin and our shame, but he did not stay dead. Three days later, our Jesus rose again, conquering death and the grave. We believe that he is preparing a place for us right now. And we believe that one day he will crack open the sky and take us to be with him. Impossible? God does his best work when it looks impossible.